The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in April 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today we welcome the lyricist David Zippel. Hi, David. Hi, guys. A quick review of, of your, your dossier, your credits. Tony Award for your lyrics for City of Angels which you co-wrote with Cy Coleman, who wrote the music, and Larry Gelbart, who wrote the book. Other Broadway credits include The Goodbye Girl, which you wrote with Marvin Hamlish and book by Neil Simon. The Woman in White, Andrew Lloyd Webber's show. Our listeners also, I'm sure, know your film work, Academy Award nominations for your two Disney movies, Mulan and Hercules, which uh, Go the Distance was the song that people know from that movie. And now a new musical that you and Cy Coleman had been working on, along with Wendy Wasserstein, a musical called Pamela's First Musical, which is about to be produced here in New York for a special occasion on Sunday, May 18th, Pamela's new musical that you and Cy Coleman uh, were working on when he died, and then Wendy Wasserstein died after that. So finally, kind of a bittersweet uh, staging. Well, it's a it, it's it's a very emotional uh, event for both uh, Graziella Danielle, who's directing the piece, and for me. We were working on it together with Wendy for several years, and with Cy, and we lost them one at a time. Uh, each time before we were about to go into production out of town, uh, Cy died, and then a year we postponed it a year, and then we lost Wendy. So uh, this is quite uh, exciting for both of us, and uh, but we miss them at, at every meeting. And, and it's based on Wendy Wasserstein's children's book of that name, isn't right. it? Right. She wrote a, a book about her niece, Pamela Wasserstein, uh, taking her to the theater. And uh, um, it's actually it's it's it was dedicated to her niece. It's not literally about her niece. But it's about an aunt who, in this case, it will be played by Donna Murphy in your right. staging, and her niece and a lot of people, I guess, that they meet and they're going to the theater. Right. It's a, it's uh, it's very light, and uh, I think the book was very charming, and we tried to capture that in in feel in the, in the musical. Who had the first idea to turn it into something for the stage? I had called Wendy when I read the book and said, "This is a it's delightful. Let's let's turn it into a, a TV movie." And we pursued that for a while, and in the process, decided to turn it into a stage stage musical. Was the was the TV movie always meant to be a musical? Yes, yes, because that's what I do. I'm a lyric writer. <laughs> so, in moving it to the stage, how far had you gotten very far in terms of doing it, thinking about it for television? Was there a rethinking of it, or was it just a question of of finding a venue where where you thought you could get it produced? We'd written five or six songs, and um, it was about that time that we decided to do it for the stage. And Cy, who, of course, you'd written with many times before, was he immediately on the project from the moment you started? Well, as soon as Wendy and I talked about the show, uh, she had a character in the book called uh, Betty and Cy Songheim, who are a, a <laughs> composite of several famous uh, songwriters. And so Wendy said, could we call Cy? And I said, that's exactly who I had in mind. So it was an instant decision for, for both of us. What was his reaction? Uh, you bet. <laughs> <laughs> Count me in. Exactly. In taking a children's book, and I'll confess that I've not read it. Um, it won't take long. <laughs> well, that's the question. Children's books don't take very long. How, what was the process of opening that up? Now, as I understand it, it's it's a one act as it's written now. Right. But how do you expand something that usually takes a few minutes at bedtime into even an hour or hour and a half to make it a full theatrical experience? Well, we took the premise of of a of 
a sophisticated, stylish New York uh, fashion designer taking her niece to her first Broadway show and placed the niece in uh, suburbia and made her a child who lived in her imagination but who had never been to a Broadway show. And uh, we basically follow her story and it's, it all takes place on her birthday and it's she's in a, has a her mother has passed away and her family uh, is is a, a bit of strange she has two brothers who um, two two young a younger brother and an older brother who don't think very much of her and think she's weird and she feels out of place in the world and uh, and we just follow her family at home and then and she, and and she comes to New York with her aunt to sort of escape the madness of her family and discovers the madness of the theater, which of course solves everything. So when when you're working with Wendy Wasserstein on her own book, what then is is your challenge, your task in in writing lyrics for songs? Do you pull incidents from the book? Do you pull actual lines that she has written and then turn them into lyrics, or do you start afresh with your own ideas? Well. As Howard mentioned, this is such a slip of a story to begin with. We started, you know, we knew we were going to have to come up with a lot out of whole cloth. And so uh, we sat down with Wendy, and Wendy had a general outline of what it was she wanted to to do with the story, how she wanted to tell the story. And then we as a group, Cy, Wendy, and I outlined where the songs would go. And then we wrote it. You said that each time, sadly, when Cy passed away, when Wendy passed away, you were close to production. How close were you? Had you begun designs? Were there? Were you cast? I mean, were you really we had, ready to go on this show? We were ready to go into production. Uh, we were supposed to do it in California um, at a theater in Palo Alto that had been very supportive of Wendy's work. And uh, the first time, when, when Cy died, and although we hadn't gotten to the point where we were casting, but we had chosen a date and uh so when uh everyone agreed to postpone it for a year and when wendy passed away um that just tabled everything for a while and and grazie and i decided that the best way to do the show would be to do it with our first choice actors in new york rather than go out of town because we really are ready i mean it's been ready for a while and those those first choice actors People that you had involved in the reading or, or the, the the workshop, some of them are involved, like Carolee Camarello and Greg Edelman, and some others are involved. Indeed, and and we have a lot of guest stars as well. Um, Donna Murphy, who wasn't in the workshop, is going to play Aunt Louise, which is the central character. And um, we found a terrific young girl who happens to be in uh, Mary Poppins at the moment, named Lila Coogan, who's going to play Pamela. But um, Lynn Aaron's and and. Uh, and um, Steve Flaherty are going to play Betty and Cy Songhai. They're going to do a little cameo. And we have Christian Borle, who was in the workshop. And uh, we have cameos from Christine Ebersole and Kathy Lee Gifford and Donna McKechnie and Richard Kind and Tommy Toon. It's it's a pretty amazing group. Um, Robert Klein, who actually did the first workshop but wasn't available to do the show, is going to do a little cameo as well. Oh, and David Garrison is going to play Bernie S. Jerry, the producer. And we should probably explain that inside joke for people who don't know. Those are the names of the gentlemen who 
were the fabled heads of the Schubert organization for many years, one being Bernie Jacobs, the other Jerry Schoenfeld, who's who's still with us, but obviously people who, who Wendy wanted to commemorate. Is there a lot of that in this, uh, names that, that there is, are inside uh, jokes? But uh, there are a lot of little, a few little inside jokes that I think people in the theater community and people who are theater uh, devotees will get. But mostly it, it's you don't need to know any of that to have a good time. You've said ready for production. You've talked about the workshop. We all know, however, when new shows, particularly new musicals, start to go into production, there can be enormous changes. And obviously that's a challenge. Do you anticipate doing more work on this show, not specifically for this special presentation, the benefit presentation, but is there a need, you know, how will you deal with the idea that when you get this to the stage the collaborators are not there for any changes that might come your way. Well, um, Graziella and I had been looking at the work. We've had had about three years to think about it, and uh, it it had been through quite a bit of work prior to losing Cy and Wendy. We had uh, uh, two developmental readings at uh, Lincoln Center, and and the, and and had worked on the show as a result of the response to those readings and our reaction to the to the pre- performances. Um, so after that, uh, Grazi and I and 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 Wendy had actually talked about what was left to do, and uh, some of that had been accomplished, and the remainder of it, uh, it involved a little bit of cutting and a little and a little bit of restructuring, and and so with Grazi's supervising eye, I kind of did a little bit of editing. Uh, we think it's pretty ready to go. Um, there are two fewer songs, and it's, uh, uh, but it feels kind of tight. And we have um, uh, Chris Durang and Andre Bishop are Wendy's literary executors, and they've been with us too. I don't think we want to change the feeling of what Wendy wanted it to be. So I, I can't imagine that there'll be any dramatic changes. Uh, but we'll see. When when the um, the responses to the readings were really good, I think we're even readier than we were then. Now, how about songs? When Cy Coleman died, were there still songs to be written? No, actually. Uh, shortly before he died, we had written the, a new song that we thought we needed for the second half of the show. And uh, um, so essentially... Uh, there's actually a little less music in the show now than there was at, at the last reading because we felt that it was a little uh, redundant at one point. So. So, so it's kind of ready for the May 18th uh, world premiere here in New York at Town Hall? I think we're on our way to being ready. <laughs> we got another five weeks. <laughs> We've been talking about the music from Pamela's first musical. Let's illustrate a little bit. There is one song that is available on a CD, sung actually by Cy Coleman and Lilius White. It's a song called It Started With a Dream. Tell us about the song, and then we'll, we'll play that. Well, in, in the show, uh, after Pamela sees her first musical, her first Broadway show, uh, she's taken backstage, and uh, this song is about the creative experience, and it's sung by the entire cast after they've done their Broadway show backstage. Um, and I think it speaks for itself. Well, let's go from the newest to whatever the earliest was. How did you conceive of the desire to be a lyricist? Well, the first show I ever saw was The Sound of... I'm sorry, uh, was The Music Man. I I saw a production of it in The Round, and I thought it was amazing. My parents took me, and it was in a tent in Lambertville, New Jersey. And I, 
as as you all know from seeing shows in the round, they're they're very uh, limited set wise. But every time something would fly in or change, I thought it was the most amazing magical thing. And and from then on, I was hooked on on theater. Uh, my parents took me to see Oliver on Broadway shortly after that, and I couldn't believe how amazing it was and the two turntables and the young actors and and I knew I wanted to be a part of it I wasn't sure what part whether I wanted to be in it or you know I, I didn't I don't think it occurred to me to, that I'd want to write it at that point but uh, I knew that this was a world that I really wanted to be a part of but then you went to law school well, not exactly immediately <laughs> after that. No, um, but, but I'm saying at some <laughs> point. production of Oliver to law school. <laughs> you, you, you went to Penn State. What did you study? Uh, I went to University of Pennsylvania. University of Pennsylvania, okay. Big difference. Um, we think so. But. <laughs> Those of us who went. Exactly. <laughs> uh, what, what did you study there? Uh, I studied uh, sociology and history. Nothing and to do with theater, really. Not a whole lot, although I was writing for theater at that point. Right. And uh, um, my senior year at Penn... Uh, I had a chance to contribute some songs to a pre-Broadway show that was trying out in Washington, D.C., a musical called Rotunda that was really terrible. Tell and, us about it. Well, it was uh, – the, the director was someone I had collaborated with, and he called me to say that um, – that the show was having some problems and the lyricist left. But, but before you go on, you said someone you'd collaborated with. You're a senior in college, and you've got you've collaborated already with a director who's got a pre-Broadway show. Well, he I, actually this this actually segues into a story that's particularly uh, timely. Uh, in 1970, when I was in in high school, I decided I wanted to write a musical. So I went to the library and I. Uh, started I, it, was, it was Dewey Decimal. That t- shows you how long ago it was. And number 812 was the plays. And I methodically took a legal yellow legal pad and, and sort of flipped through as A to Z, which took me like about three weeks, and wrote down the name of every play that I thought might make an interesting musical. And I started reading, and I got up to K, Kaufman and Hart, and read Once in a Lifetime, which I thought was, what a great idea for a musical. So I started writing it with a friend of mine who was a, a, a year bef- early, younger than I was in, in high school, and we wrote a couple of songs for it. And then when I got to college, I had the idea again, and I met uh, a director who had directed at Penn who was the head of the theater department at Temple University named Joe Leonardo. And uh, his productions were extraordinary, and I liked him, and I pitched him the idea of adapting that, and he thought it was a good idea. So we started working on that a little bit with a composer, but that didn't exactly work out. And uh, uh, and the, he was my collaborator at the time, and he was directing this show called Rotunda. But um, what's interesting is that uh, a few years later, when I did go to law school, and I went because I figured the idea of I could be a waiter in New York for three years and write songs, or I could go to Harvard Law School and write songs – and at the end of those three years, uh, if for some reason the world wasn't as enamored of my songs as I thought they might be, I could be a lawyer or a producer or something other than a waiter. So it just made sense to me. Every, uh, people always assume that I went because my parents wanted me to go or something like that. And I, I love my parents, but I would never do something that was so uh, intense and also extraneous unless I had a really good reason myself and so that was why I went. We'll come back to Rotunda because if that's your first experience of contributing to a pre-Broadway, ultimately never Broadway musical. Indeed. But what was what was the experience? What did you learn from that? Well, um, I let's see the show it was a wild situation. I was writing songs with a, another classmate of mine at Penn 
And actually, and the first thing I did when 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 the opportunity arose to write for the show, I wrote a song myself, music and lyrics, and I sent it to them. It was a song called "Don't Mess with the Press," and it was a political musical rotunda. And they thought it was terrific, and they asked me if they could could use it. And I said, "Well, only if you hire me to write the rest of the songs." And they said, "Okay," which amazed me that they said yes. So then I I was I got. Ed, the guy across the hall. <laughs> we wrote four more songs. And um, the show, uh, so I would go down on the weekends to see the progress of the show. And uh, it was not a ter- particularly good show. It wasn't truly terrible. But uh, um, I remember two things was that the, the, uh, the, um, the Washington Post picked out three songs and said they were pretty good even though they didn't like the show and they were all songs that I'd worked on and the um, but it wasn't a good review and the Washington Star had a critic who said and I'll never forget it it's burned into the back of my retinas from having read it once uh, in Rotunda there is, there is not a character you can like a melody you can hum or a lyric that doesn't automatically upgrade your opinion of the Burma Shave Bards. <laughs> and that was written by Dave Richards, who later became the New York Times theater critic, which I reminded him one day, and he laughed. So that sent you to law school. Well, it, it certainly confirmed my, my uh, decision to go. But after law school, then, how did you break into the business? Well, because you didn't practice, correct? I, I didn't. While I was in law school... Uh, I had the idea of doing Going Holly once in a lifetime again as a musical. And Joe still was totally on board. And while I was there, I met Bar- uh, Wally Harper and Barbara Cook. And Wally became my first professional collaborator. Although, actually, before that, I had met a singer who was a uh, terrific songwriter as well named Pamela Stanley. And we wrote songs together, and then she got a disco career going. And so we wrote songs for her disco CDs. But that was sort of a... Uh, although pop music is always interested... In interested me um that was not a focus i I wanted to write for the theater so wally became my first first professional collaborator in in, for theatrical songs and he liked the idea of of doing once in a lifetime and we were going to call the show going hollywood and we got the rights from the kaufman and hart estate which took a little bit it took a lot but barbara cook sang the auditions for us and in the middle of writing it he decided that he didn't really want to do a Kaufman and Hart musical. This he being Wally. Okay. And, and, and Wally Harper was Barbara Cook's longtime accompanist and right. collaborator and arranger and exactly. guided her with a lot of the material that she chose. And a great friend and, a, and someone who continued to be a collaborator up until the end of his life. And so uh, we didn't know what we were going to do. And so we had a parting of the ways and I, ha- I had to find another composer and I found a young Harvard graduate named Jonathan Sheffer who was very enthusiastic about the material. And so he and, and Joe and I started again, our fourth composer, and wrote the show. Um, and we had to go back and get the rights again. And in 1982, we did these two readings that were starring Christine Ebersole. And uh, it went really well. Um, and we did it resulting in a workshop that didn't go as well. And the producer couldn't raise the money, and the whole thing kind of went away cut to and over the intervening 25 years people would call me about the show uh yesterday if you happen to look at playbill online uh there is an item about uh the fact that uh in that chorus of that ill-fated workshop there was a chorus boy named jerry mitchell 
And he's now, of course, the director of and choreographer of Legally Blonde. He choreographed uh, the Full Monty, Hairspray. Uh, the Lacage Revival. Lacage Revival, shows. exactly. Yeah. He uh, thought, always thought this was a great show. And he called us and said, let's do it. And Jack O'Brien has been our guardian angel. And we're doing this reading uh, in the first week of May for the Old Globe and for Hal Luftig, who's a Broadway producer, with uh, Matthew Morrison, who's in South Pacific, and Christian Borrell. And um, Leslie Kritzer, who's currently in uh, opening tonight in Catered Affair, and um, David Pitu and Richard Kind, uh, an amazing cast. Um, oh, Julie Halston. Uh, and so it looks like it's on track after, I guess, 1970. So how many years is that? <laughs> Uh, you're, you're, well, from 1970, you're looking at 38 years. Yeah, it's a long time. I mean, for people who say it takes a long time to develop a musical, you're really trying to win the prize. Well, you know what? I wasn't <laughs> trying to win the prize, but we may, and, and we'll see if, it, if it's fully developed or not. It may need another decade or two. Be- before we leave Wally Harper behind, um, you and he wrote a wonderful song, which has become so much a part of Barbara Cook's uh, uh, repertoire, It's Better With a Band. Which Thank has you. amazing lyrics, and the story I understand. Tell us, tell us how that came about. That you and he were to basically doing a review with a piano. That was it. Well, actually, no. The review came after the song. Uh-huh. Um, Barbara uh, had, was going to be doing a Carnegie Hall concert, uh-huh. and I said, "Well, Wally, let's write something ourselves for Barbara, as long as she's going to do this." And we, and we wrote two songs. One was a, a a comedy parody, kind of a Gilbert and Sullivan song called. Um, the Ingenue, mm-hmm. and the other was It's Better with a Band. And uh, in 1980, she did a, a, a Carnegie Hall concert with, a, with an orchestra, and Luther Henderson, who was a great orchestrator at the time and passed away, a wonderful man, did the orchestrations for the songs. And uh, it was actually it, the first thing I ever did that was, um, it, it introduced me to New York. And it was a, my first professional uh, event, and it went really well. And because it was a live concert, uh, if you listen to the CD uh, called It's Better with a Band, you can hear the audience response. And during the ingenue, you can hear the laughter during the songs. And it was probably a decade between then and City of Angels. And there was a lot of time in the middle where I was wondering whether or not this was going to work. Uh, but I could always sort of listen to that CD and said, well, they did laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I have proof. <laughs> so what was the next show for um, you? After after uh, going Hollywood, which which didn't come off right, what? well, roughly at that same time, uh, it's it's kind of a peculiar way to start a career. But I began my career with a career retrospective. <laughs> um, I took the song "It's Better with a Band" and Joe Leonardo, the director that I had mentioned before, and we put together a review of my songs called "It's Better with a Band," and it starred. Um, uh, an unknown girl named Nancy Lamott, who was one of my best friends, who was a great singer, uh, and uh, a better-known girl named Catherine Cox, who was then had just replaced uh, Glenn Close in Barnum. Uh, it opened off Broadway with uh, Scott Bakula, who was an unknown actor at that time, and Jennifer Lewis, who's actually opening on Broadway next week in uh, Hairspray, but she was an unknown diva at that time. And the understudy was an unknown diva named, uh, or girl, named Donna Murphy. 
and we did this little show. It's, it started actually the lyrics of an unknown writer with a cast of unknowns. Exactly. It sounds very promising as a commercial venture, <laughs> and that's why we call it "It's Better with a Band" because it was the only thing I had done that anyone had even heard of. <laughs> but we started at "Don't Tell Mama" in a little cabaret, and actually before. Um, Scott Bakula was in it. Uh, Pat Quinn, who is a, well, a fairly well-known actor in New York and the president of Equity, um, he had a uh, he started it. But when we moved to Off Broadway, uh, he had a real job, so he, we we got Scott Bakula. <laughs> so bring us up to City of Angels. Well, in the intervening years, um, I contributed to some re- reviews were very popular at the time. So Diamonds. I wrote a couple of songs for Diamonds and for A My Name is Alice. And uh, there was a show at, at Radio City called 5678 Dance that uh, Wally and Harper and I wrote songs for, for Sandy Duncan and the Rockettes. And um, God, I, it, uh, there was an, uh, an off-Broadway show that didn't run very long called Just So, based on the Just So stories that I wrote with a, a really talented composer named Doug Katsaris. And Alan Menken and I were writing songs together at that point. Um, he was write, mostly writing commercials then, uh, jingles. Mm-hmm. And he... Uh, but he w- had started writing with Howard Ashman, and he, was, and he and I wrote some pop songs, and we wrote, uh, we wrote a song for Diamonds together. Um... I was just doing everything I could to get my songs out there. And uh, uh, Nancy Lamott was singing them in her cabaret. Often 30 or 40 people heard them at one time. (laughs) (laughs) But it was, uh, you know, you just do what you do. Well, then I understand that you uh, kind of pitched Cy Coleman and Larry Gelbart for a shot at, at doing a couple of songs kind of on spec for City of Angels. Well, sort of. What happened um, over the years... uh, the first person to publish any of my songs was Sy's company. Uh, he had a so- company called Notable Music, and um, they heard uh, Wally Harper took a song that we wrote, a pop song, and they bought it and were uh, sending it around. And over the years, uh, and, and my attorney was also Sy's attorney, so they, he, he and uh, and his wife and and a lot of mutual friends kept telling Sy he should talk to David Zippel. And I think Sy was sort of a guy who did things on his own time and he hadn't gotten around to paying attention to me and that was fine and about after about four years of this he called me into his office and said let's talk and he pitched a show to me and it wasn't a show that I really wanted to do it didn't interest me very much and I um I didn't want to turn him down right away so and I didn't I said well let's have another meeting and you could talk to we'll talk a little bit more about the show and we did, and it was at the second meeting that I said, well, I had heard about this show. Uh, it was then called Death is for Suckers, and I had read about it. They had a, a column in the New York Times called News of the Rialto that talked about upcoming projects, and I had read about this a few, couple of years before, and it was a jazz-based detective story, kind of a Mickey Spillane approach to a Broadway show. And, and because I, I love jazz and I was a big Lambert Hendricks and Ross fan and later the Manhattan Transfer, I thought this was a show that I was really right for. So I said, what about that show? And, they, and he said, oh, well, the Larry Gelbart project. That, you know, we're, we're talking a lot of big shots for that one. And I said, well, would you consider me? And he said, well, I'll think about it. And about three months later, he called me up and said, let's give it a shot. Do you guys want to um, w- w- are you willing to write on spec and speculation? Just, you know, you write it and we'll decide at the end of that whether or not we're going to go forward together. And I said, are you kidding? I- I'd love to. So the, the arrangement was that we were going to write three songs at the end of which we would 
stop and reevaluate, and and the three of us would decide whether it was, this collaboration was working. And Cy, and I wrote the first song, which was called "Lost and Found," which was uh, the, it was a oh, and at that point. Um, Larry hadn't come up with the idea of telling the two stories simultaneously that ultimately became what was so distinctive about City of Angels. Well, it's the stories of Stein, the, the, the writer, and Stone, the character he has created, the detective Stone. Right. So those are the two that you're talking about. Right. And yeah. so you see the, the screenplay he's writing come to life in black and white like a film noir, and you also see his life in living color. But this is when it was just a detective story. And um, so I wrote the song for The Missing Girl, and and they were really enthusiastic about it. And then Cy played me this melody, and it was just spectacular. I thought it was so beautiful. And he asked me, you know, if I would set it. And it was um, a love song for uh, that ultimately became With Every Breath I Take. And uh, I knew that, if that A, my career <laughs> depended on it, and also whether I got the show depended on it, but also that if I really nailed it, I would have written what I thought would be a great Cy Coleman ballad. So uh, Cy gave me the music, and um, I, the title sort of came to me in the meeting. I said, what do you think of With Every Breath I Take? And he said, I love it. That's great. And he was going on a vacation, and he was away for about, I think, eight or nine days. And so I had that, not, that period at home to write the song. And I wrote the first version of it, and I looked at it, and I kind of liked it, but I thought, oh, well, that, that came too easily. <laughs> so I wrote, I think, nine more versions of it. And because uh, I had a lot of time because I just wanted to make sure it was right. And I went to his office when he came back and uh, I had them all in a pile and I put them on his piano and he sat down and he played the very first version, which was still the one I liked the best. And he played it from and sang it from top to bottom. And he sang it down. He said, that's just terrific. That's great. Let's talk about the next song. And I slipped away the other <laughs> 11 or nine versions <laughs> so that he never saw those. But uh, and, uh, and we never stopped. We never t- talked about whether we were going to do this, um, whether, whether it was just going to work. We just finished the show. That was and that first version, is that what ultimately ended up in the show? That or is, was it revised further? No, that's pretty much exactly what's in the show. Mm-hmm. You've already mentioned multiple collaborators, and I'm curious. In this case, you said Cy had written the music, and uh, then you set the words to it. Is that always your practice, that, that you, or does it go every which way? Yeah, it, it pretty much goes every which way. Um, we usually decide what the song is going to accomplish first together, and then... Uh, there are occasions where Cy will write a melody and I or would write a melody and I would set it. Sometimes I would write a lot of the lyric or an entire lyric and um, and he would set that. And, and, and with different collaborators, it works in different ways. And sometimes, uh, most frequently, we'll sit in the room together and kind of hammer out a shape. Um, sometimes I'll have a line or two. Sometimes I'll throw a title out or they'll throw a melody and the title will come from that. It's a lot of back and forth. Well, your your purpose as a lyricist is kind of analogous to the book writer to tell the story. You tell it with lyrics set to music as opposed to writing it as a script for for the book. So do you, in the case of, say, uh, With Every Breath I Take, when you wrote that song, did you know the storyline at that point? Had that already been defined and you had to plug a, a song into that part of the story? Or did you just kind of write that out of, here's what I think I should be writing, this kind of song? No, we had already outline the detective story part of the show and we knew who was singing which character was singing it and what the circumstances were and where and and 
Uh, so there was the backstory had been thought and, and through. And the uh, plot line dictated there should be a song here right. and it should express these emotions or, or whatever. Essentially. It was it was a little vaguer than that on this particular uh-huh. song, but we knew what, what it was to accomplish. And, and I wanted the song to reflect... I mean, it, it, it. I don't know that it really matters to the to the audience, but at the time, I wanted uh, the character who's singing the song to actually be singing something. She, she's singing it in a nightclub. I wanted her to reflect what the guy, her her lover, was feeling while she was singing it, rather than what she was actually feeling. So it contradicts her situation. Well, we talk about the song with every breath I take. You mentioned Nancy Lamott, who was a fine, fine singer. We happen to have a version of that song by Nancy Lamott. Oh, that's great. And our our listeners certainly have heard the cast recording. We, we play that all the time. So why don't you set up the song, how, how it came that Nancy Lamott recorded the song, then we'll play her version of the song from City of Angels. Well, Nancy w- was one of my best friends and was definitely my muse, um, for, or I met her very early after I moved to New York, right after she moved to New York, and um, we became friends and collaborators. And she she sang the demo for just about every song I wrote up until we lost her, and um, she sang the demo for this. Um, and when she did her first CD, uh, she wanted to record it, and, and I was so glad. I am so glad she did. David, you mentioned earlier an affinity for Manhattan Transfer, which was one of the fine singing groups of the 70s, 80s. A lot of this music seems similar to that style of music, to Manhattan Transfer and other jazz-infused artists of of that day. How much of of an influence were groups like Manhattan Transfer and others, Lambert Hendricks and Ross you mentioned, how much of an influence were they in in this score? Well, I think they were... I know they were a huge influence. Uh, Cy and I intended from the beginning to write a a jazz score and not to to make it theatrical but but genuinely jazzy and uh that's certainly something that a gift that Cy had and um I love the way that Lambert Hendricks and Ross who were a huge influence on Manhattan Transfer would take um um they would they would take or instrumentals and then set lyrics to really tightly rhymed uh rhythmically challenging uh, instrumental sections of songs, and so we decided that that would be a great way to to, to make this unique a unique uh, approach to a musical. And I think it, it also is very apt for a, for a film noir because that was the music of film noir. Well, we keep talking about the film noir, the original portion of the show. When the idea came to have the duality, both the writer and his creation. Did that call for a different style of writing for you, or or did you say, no, this is still of a piece? Because clearly, reality and fiction uh, are presented differently when one sees the show. Well, th- that's actually a good question, because the, the dual story resulted out of the fact that uh, because Cy and I had decided that we were going to do something uh, that we, th- I, I'm pretty sure, was and is unique for the theater— writing a genuine jazz score in a theatrical setting, um, Larry said, well, I want to do something really original and different. And just doing a, a, a pastiche of a private eye story isn't enough. And he said, "You, got, we, we had already outlined the private eye story. Uh, so we all, Cy and I, who lived on the East Coast at the time, 
uh, and uh, decided that we would continue working on the, the the songs for the the jazz songs for the Private Eye story, and he was going to look at the piece and try to figure out whether there was another approach that would um, be more satisfying theatrically for him. And about three months later, he gave us a call, and we flew out to California, and he pitched the idea of telling the two stories. And we all immediately were uh, totally enthusiastic about it. And so we played him the – I think we had three or four songs at that point, and he was very enthusiastic about them. And then three of us sat in a room for about a week and a half, and every day we would start at the beginning of the day and work right through the day outlining the entire story, and then we went back and plotted all the songs, and that's how it came together. But because it was set in the 40s, to answer your question, um, we used pop pop jazz as well to sort of give it a feel of the period, and and it, it worked in both, we think, in both the uh, the real-life story and the, uh, the show within a show. And then how do you and the book writer basically write in the same voice? Well, that's that's... The challenge. Is it, those, and, is it those everyday meetings that engender that? Well, we would send pages back and forth uh-huh. to one another, and uh, it, it, the more we worked on it, the more in tune we could be. And um, because some of the lyrics came simultaneous to the script, I think we informed one another's uh, uh, vocabulary and style for the characters. But um, I mean, Larry is a hero of mine, so the fact that people seem to think that the lyrics sound like Gelbardian makes me very happy. <laughs> and and I think that is the lyricist's uh, responsibility, to make to be the bridge between the music and, and the libretto, and to make sure that the characters sing in the same voice that, in which they speak. Moving on from City of Angels, um, The Goodbye Girl. How did you come to that project? Well, that was my idea. Uh-huh. Uh, I had so you didn't come to it; you came up with it. Well, I, yeah, I, I called um, Neil Simon and said, "What do you think of doing a musical of the Goodbye Girl?" Wait, wait you just pick up the phone and say, "Hey, Neil, it's David. What do you think of this idea?" Or well, did, did, did I, you know him? I you met him. With? I didn't really know uh-huh. him very well, uh-huh. but uh, um, I got his number and I called him, and mm. he said, "That's a good idea." And he had written a show with Marvin, who I knew. Marvin Hamlish. Mar- I'm sorry, Marvin Hamlish. And uh, said, suppose we we do it with Marvin. And uh, Marvin was very enthusiastic about it. And that's how it came to be. What was your interest in, in, in adapting this as a show? The movie in 1977, was that a favorite film or... You know, I like the characters. Uh-huh. I just thought they sang, and I, I, and it's it's a charming movie, and the characters are interesting, and and it, and it was a funny and moving story, and I just thought um, it could work on the stage. The experience of writing with Cy Coleman versus writing with Marvin Hamlish. You already said it's different every time. I'm wondering what the collaborative process was for that show, as as opposed to with Cy. Well, when I started writing with Cy, uh, Cy and Larry, um, Larry and Cy, who, who were friends of mine up in, you know, Larry's still very close to me, and Cy was uh, a dear friend from that moment on. Uh, but their approach to life is a little bit different. And from the instant I started, Larry treated me like a colleague, and Cy uh, initially treated me as a, uh, a protege. Uh, and I, I think it was during the course of, um, of writing City of Angels 
that I went from being a protege to a colleague. So I mm-hmm. felt like I graduated. When I started writing with Marvin, um, City of Angels had already been produced and it had been successful and we had won a lot of awards. And so uh, uh, Marvin just was so thrilled to be writing with me, which was I was just honored that he wanted to write with me. And uh, so it, it was just a very pleasant Co- collaboration right from the start and and I never felt the need to prove myself to him uh, and I obviously I, I was a little more confident and a little less nervous in, in the process hmm. now, how about working with Neil Simon taking his existing material and now adapting it into songs what, what, what sort of a challenge was that well it was inter- it was interesting because Neil um, I think Neil was a little more guarded about his material and there were times when we would take really good ideas of his and scenes of his and turn them into songs and I, I think he knew that it was the right thing to do to musicalize it but I think part of him didn't really want to give it up and he'd prefer to keep the jokes in the book and uh, and I think that was something that ultimately uh, I, I think the revised version of the show is much more fully musicalized than the version that we did on Broadway explain the revised version well, after the show had run on uh, in New York, and it, it only ran about nine months, eight months, eight and a half months, um, it, and it, I think it was considered a disappointment. It was uh, – we kind of got a third raves, a third mixed, and a third pans, but it didn't take off in the way that we hoped. Um, uh, I went back to with that aforementioned director, Joe Leonardo, and he and I co-directed a production at a theater in Chicago that – was a revised version of the show uh, about a year later, and that was well-received, and that's the version that's licensed these days. When you went back to revise it, were you were you changing songs? Were you editing book? I mean, how much... Because you talked about... You just said you and Joe went and worked on it. Where were your other collaborators in this process? Well, there were, we didn't do any significant rewriting. There was a song that was... There were a couple things that were cut along the way that we added back in, and it's... Um, it's and it's edited. It's, 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 hmm. it's tighter than it was. Do you have that temptation on other projects? I mean, are you someone for whom a show, once it's finished, it's finished? Or was it a case of you didn't think the show had been fully realized on Broadway? Well, I I think it was pretty unanimous among the team. Um, But it was, uh, you know, I think that every group as a, every every team on every show um, has their own way of working together. And you really do have to come up with a, a single take on every show. So it's not necessary that, you know, it, it, mm, I'm, stu- I'm stuttering a little bit, but I, what I'm trying to say is I think we all have to agree to make changes. It's, it's generally this, and that was a, a unique situation where since it wasn't rewriting anything, it was just editing. Hmm. Uh, it all worked out. Well, was that also the case with The Woman in White, which was produced in London originally, and then there was like a version two in London, and then the New York version was somewhat shortened down. So were there substantial changes made in the development of that show, even after it got on stage in the West End? Well, I think most shows have a, uh, um, a developmental process, and sometimes it takes place after a show opens. So. But there were, there were some, I guess, some tightening when they moved to New York, too. So they meant giving up some, some songs, some lyrics. Oh, well, I, I'm big on cutting. Are um, you? Yeah, I, I tend to think I like short shows. And if the show is going to be long, and, and a show can justify itself, uh, it, but it has to. And so um, 
Charlotte Jones and I were very keen on on cutting the show. And she, she's the uh, she book was writer. the book writer of the Woman in White, uh, even in in London the first time. And it was over the process of doing it that I think, uh, and I think Andrew was 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 eager to to shorten it a little bit too. But Trevor has his process, and I think he wasn't ready at that point, and ultimately he made some cuts. Well, you told us how you got involved working with Cy Comey. You told us how you got involved working with uh, Neil Simon and Marvin Hamlish. How about Andrew Lloyd Webber? Did you pick up the phone and call him and say, mm, Sir Andrew? No, he called <laughs> Lord. Lord, he's, Lord he's Andrew. Lord Andrew. No, he called me, uh, which was very nice. This is Lord Andrew calling? Exactly. You, a call from the Lord. <laughs> um, and when the Lord calls... You answer. So seriously, what, what, what did he say? Did he literally call you and say, this is Andrew and you want to work together? Well, we had met together. We had met several years earlier and uh, talked a little bit about maybe collaborating and uh, nothing really came of that. And then he, ca- he called me a few years after that uh, and said, um, I'm coming to New York. I'd love to talk to you about a project. And uh, um, would you meet with me? And I said, absolutely. And then I got a call a few weeks after that, f- about a week before the event, and his assistant said, he's not coming, so uh, you know, we'll, we'll call you again. And then about five years later, oh, wow. and we'd, we'd run into one another socially a couple of times, uh, but about five years later, he called me up and said, I'm really excited. I have a, a project I would like to pitch to you. We come have lunch with me? And I did, and it was The Woman in White. And I'd never done anything quite like that, and I'd never done a through-composed musical, which was his intention, uh, a musical where everything is sung. And I thought, well, that scares me a little bit. I'd better do it. And so that's how that came to be. And was it the same project he had had yeah, in mind yeah. five years earlier? Uh, no, it was a different project. Different project. Yeah. yeah. Well, what are, what were the challenges for you, obviously, than other than a lot more writing, but to shape a complete libretto in lyric as opposed to just doing isolated songs and, and translating what Charlotte Jones had done because, as you say, it was it was through composed. Everyone's singing all the time. Well, I mean, one of the, uh, the unsung heroine in this is Charlotte Jones. Uh, having a really fine writer work with you, and, and I had Trevor Nunn and Andrew Lloyd Webber, and w- again, we started out as a group, and uh, and outline the show and almost like you would storyboard an animated movie with each scene and and then Charlotte would sometimes write prose scenes for certain sections of the of the the show and uh, when we did have the novel it was a Wilkie Collins novel from 1860 or 1861 uh, as a as a source as well and um, Andrew had an interesting way of working which I had never experienced before he would often write full scenes out musically and then i would set the lyrics to that scene Hmm. and i at first couldn't imagine how he would know that you could accomplish all the dialogue or all of the story in that amount of music but after working on it most of the times he was pretty on the money and if if i had more to say he would sometimes help me find a way to adjust it a little bit but i gather that the woman in white the story is reasonably pretty well known in england it's not well known over here so were you the person really coming to it new whereas the other people had some associations with it uh yes (laughs) so was that a hindrance because they were already talking in shorthand about a story they knew or was just you read the book and you were up to speed (gasps) Well, it was it, we, we uh, it was always our intention to freely adapt it and we did. Um but uh yeah, it was it was easy to get up to speed. 
It was a long novel, but it didn't take that long to read. <laughs> so what was the experience for you of working with probably the most successful composer Broadway has known, the longest-running shows, Lord Andrew Lloyd Webber? What was that experience of working with him? Well, and we had a good time. I mean, uh-huh. it was it was like writing with anyone else, only uh-huh. every now and then you would think about the fact that, uh, well, when we would hop one of his uh, uh, planes and go to one of his castles to write for a weekend, that sometimes brought... <laughs> the idea to mind that this guy is a titan in the theater. <laughs> I guess so. Well, that kind of brings us almost back to present. We were talking initially about uh, Pamela's first musical. Another musical that has not been produced that you've been working on is called The Private Lives of Napoleon and Josephine. You and Cy Coleman had been working on that, and it's, I guess, about two-thirds done when, when he passed away. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, and in particular, one of the songs from that, which is a love letter to, from Napoleon to Josephine, a song called I'd Give the World. Well, uh, the show was called N, actually. Oh. Um, I guess there were, if there was going to be a subtitle, it would be... Because Napoleon signed everything with this really elaborately scrawled N, uh, one initial. And, uh, but, the, but it is the, about the private lives of uh, Napoleon and Josephine. And Larry Gelbart was the book writer. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, were, we were about two-thirds of the way through. It's, I'm very excited about that score in particular because it's... Um, different than anything Sai had ever done. And, and I, I think we were challenging ourselves, and, and Larry as well, to, to do something very very emotional and romantic because City of Angels was less so. And uh, I, I don't know what will happen with it. Uh, Larry and I are working on a couple of things, but that's still on the back burner. At the trying, trying to finish it. Pardon me? Trying to finish that show or working on some no, other no, things? No, we're working on other projects so, together. So I guess we can't quite talk about that yet. Uh, not quite. But maybe at a future date. We don't often talk about film work on this program, but you did write two sh- uh, movies for Disney, and nowadays everybody sits around saying, well, what's Disney's next show going to be? Has there been any conversation about either Mulan or Hercules becoming stage musicals? Perhaps, but I haven't been involved in those conversations yet. <laughs> <laughs> a short answer, and we'll say yeah. it speaks volumes. I also want to ask quickly, uh, people out in Seattle, as I recall, got a chance to see a show of yours called Princesses a little while back, and I'm wondering uh, what's happening with that show. Well, um, we're looking for a theater. Um, we have producers who want to do it. Uh, it's still in the developmental stage, but but it's very much uh, on the. It's very much on its way. And we do know now that Pamela's first musical will be presented here in New York at Town Hall on Sunday, May 18th, starring Donna Murphy and a cast of dozens of very well-known uh, theater people, a show that you wrote along with Cy Coleman, who wrote the music, and Wendy Wasserstein based on her book. David, David Zippel, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks, David. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.